0: Welcome to Reflective Teaching in a Digital Age podcast series. The title of this episode is Using the Community of Inquiry Theoretical Framework to Rethink Online Teaching. Today, our conversation will be with Dr. Randy Garrison, who is a professor emeritus at the University of Calgary.
1: Fun fact about Dr. Garrison has he's been the Dean of Extension at the University of Alberta, the Director of Teaching of the Teaching and Learning Center at the University of Calgary, and he's published extensively on teaching and learning in adult, higher, and distance education contexts.
0: His most recent book is E-Learning in the 21st Century: A Community of Inquiry Framework for Research and Practice.
1: Without further ado, let's just jump into this conversation with Dr. Garrison.
0: So, Randy, first of all, it's great to have you here, and thank you so much for your time. Can you tell us a little bit about the background of Community of Inquiry Framework?
2: Yeah, interesting. We just had sort of the 20th anniversary of the publication of our first uh, article that gave an overview of the framework. Uh, So it it started actually a little more than 20 years ago. Uh, it began, um, this work, it was precipitated uh, by our desire to offer an online master's program. Uh, we had the, the goal of developing a graduate program that could be accessible to working professionals online. There were no guidelines or ways to think about how best to do this. The initial challenge uh, we had was to get the program approved, and this was an uphill battle in a university context that very much concerned with quality uh, issues. At the time, uh, online learning was very new, and there was great skepticism that a quality education couldn't be delivered online. We had to assure the approval body that learners would experience a comparable educational experience as students in a face-to-face classroom, and this mm-hmm. meant incorporating a high degree of interaction. All of this coincided with developments, of course, with information and communications technology um, that presented significant opportunities for interactive and collaborative approaches to learning at a distance. Uh, this innovation ultimately precipitated a, a broader shift in how we think about and design learning experiences, both online and face-to-face. Given the inherent complexity and the pioneering nature of this task, we needed to simplify our understanding of this approach as much as possible this led us to converge on three distinct complementary elements of an educational experience and the creation of the committee inquiry Venn diagram so that was mm-hmm. that's the background
0: going back when you started developing this framework what was your um Thinking then about the role of online, was that something that you thought would transform the education?
2: Well, I, I'll tell you, that's really interesting. I have to give you, go back and do, give you a little history of, of my career. But I, I started in computer applications, so I had a, I had a, a, a technical background, math, uh, science background. But I did it, my doctorate in adult education. There, I—that's where I really—I realized the importance of learning collaboratively, how interaction, because adult education is very much based on that model, uh, where adults have a lot to share, and um, and we should do that in a learning experience. So I had that mindset, and then then I was offered a job as director of distance education. And distance mm-hmm. education back in those days, and this is in the '80s. Uh, was independent study. It was learning packages. You mailed it mm-hmm. out to the students. Uh, but I, I when I started, uh, we were trying, we were working with some new technology, audio conferencing, uh, teleconferencing it was called at the time. We were using telephone lines and so on. And which was, of course, highly interactive, but that really went against the whole, uh, distance education um approach and and i at the time wrote a book on this and and advocating you know a, a more of a communicative interactive approach and and arguing that this was the essence of education at the time and that distance educators need to really have a, a look at this and so that was my background and so i always came with that idea and so then when computer conferencing became more viable uh that really fit into you know, my background as well, like, you know, again, uh, my work with computer applications and education and so on. So that's just how it just by, you know, evolved almost by chance. I seized opportunities as they came, um, and saw the opportunities to offer graduate programs. And I think I, I, offered, I, I created two graduate programs online, uh, really blended programs, uh, where they combined online and face to face, uh, one of the first, uh, really in North America, maybe in the world, the, the programs we did that. So, anyways, that's that was my background, and that's how uh, it all evolved. And then, I, of course, as I said, I've always philosophically believed it, in the power of, of um, collaboration and, and uh, interaction, you know, with, with learners.
0: What exactly uh, type of technology we're talking about for online? Was it primarily text based?
2: Yes, it was. And interesting enough, at that time, we called it, and I did, was doing quite a bit of research at that time, in computer conferencing. We call it computer conferencing. We didn't use the term online learning. So it was very much text-based. And, and, and you know, there, there's great strength, by the way, in text-based uh, approaches to learning. So, yes, uh, computer conferencing. It wasn't until a few years later it started becoming e-learning and then online learning.
1: Randy, what did it look like? Was it that the information was posted and then people responded to it at their leisure? Or was there, like, what were the rules of engagement at that point? Good
2: question. Uh, what we did was there was a lot of preparation uh, beforehand. We would send out materials. To, students were expected to read the materials or they were, sometimes there was a lecture, uh, an audio lecture, for example, they could listen to. But we used the the, the online experience uh, Primarily for interaction and uh, to engage in, in critical discourse, so that's that's how we went about it. Was it asynchronous? Yes, it was largely asynchronous. We found that the asynchronous was was. Actually, quite powerful uh, because it gave students time to think and they didn't feel as obligated to respond immediately, uh, you know. So, and reflection is a major part, as I'll explain later, with the community of inquiry framework. So, yes, it was largely asynchronous, and I have to admit, I'm, I'm a great believer, as much as it is nice to have synchronous um, audio or video, uh, I'm still a great believer in, in giving students time to to read and reflect and then engage in the Mm -hmm. subject matter Mm
1: -hmm. and about how many people were you catering to at that point
2: relatively small classes we had i think if i have to think back but we we had probably about 20 students uh, in the class but mm-hmm. 20 students, though, uh, we, we is still too large, I think, generally for plenary discussions. So we would break up students into smaller groups. And, and we could do that with the online learning at the time, computer conferencing. Uh, and that was a very powerful technique. So that's a, the key thing to the whole community of inquiry is to always be thinking of breaking students up into smaller groups and not having the large plenary sessions. That sort of, it uh, I think... Um, reduces the, the ability to, to interact.
1: Following on that, my next question as I'm thinking about it is, what are the core elements of this community of inquiry?
2: Yeah, I, and before we get into the actual elements, I think it's important to understand the basic assumption of the community inquiry and the guiding principle. The, the community inquiry framework provides the, the template to create a collaborative learning Community, so we have to always have that in mind. That it's all about collaboration, more more than interaction. Even collaboration goes beyond just simple interaction. Mm -hmm. Uh, The core principle is that meaning is constructed through inquiry and critically sharing thoughts and ideas. So to achieve this, uh, we focused on the three uh, elements: social presence, teaching presence, and cognitive presence, of course. And just mm-hmm. the essence of each of these, uh, social presence divides the environmental issues, that, that is the feelings of trust, open communication and group cohesion. Cognitive presence re- reflects the core learning approach, the inquiry process that is, which in essence is, is a scientific method. And so those in, in the sciences should uh, gravitate this uh, to this, I think, uh, naturally. Regarding the third element, teaching presence, I consider it to be the glue that ensures purposeful progress and sustainability of the community in terms of creating meaning and shared understanding. I emphasize it as teaching presence. Very important to distinguish that in the community of inquiry, not teacher presence. Teaching presence is about creating an environment of shared responsibility and control. So those are the, the, the three, uh, just a brief overview of the three elements and hopefully later I can get into it a little bit more.
0: You hear a lot of comments right now about shifting the role of the instructor that once you're in online environment, you, it's not your typical face to face instruction. It's more about mediating the learning experience. Um, and it sounds that the teaching presence is in alignment with that. Is that correct?
2: Uh, yes, in, in terms of it's, it's a question of using the technology properly. If you're not going to engage students and use the full capability of the technology, then you really frankly don't need to even go online. You can just give them independent study materials. Mm-hmm. So the whole idea is is to is to engage students and use the full uh, range of the technology.
1: But the students themselves, they have to bear some level of responsibility too, right how they engage, how they choose to engage, mm. what prior knowledge they bring to the space. These are things that would have to be taken into consideration, correct?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And this goes to the the, the, the essence of teaching presence, uh, the whole mm-hmm. idea of, of emphasizing teaching presence. Is that students do become the teachers themselves, you know, mm-hmm. uh, to engage in in. Managing and monitoring, uh, the whole learning process. So they, they become a, a teacher as well. Uh-huh. Uh, so that's, that's the, the key of the whole teaching presence concept. Uh, and, and it really is essential if you're going to have truly collaborative learning experiences. But it also is really so important from a metacognitive perspective. That is that, that students learn how to learn. They learn what the inquiry process is all about and, and how to manage that and, and ultimately you know become better learners beyond the classroom as well. So it's a long-term process. So they learn much more than just the content that they're learning. Mm-hmm although they learn that content very much more effectively through collaborative approaches as well. But it has a a longer range, broader uh, impact, I think.
0: You know, I wonder if there is difference for students in terms of whether those are the graduate level students or those are freshman students, when there is this level of uh, responsibility for your learning. I don't know if you had any experience to compare those groups.
2: Yeah, that's really an important point. Uh, yes, graduate students uh, take to it very, very quickly. Usually because they're a little older, a little more sophisticated. They, they do, you know, they, they have more experience to share. They're frankly probably a little better learners. So what is very important, particularly in undergraduate, uh, learners, is that they understand what the approach is. And it's a collaborative approach and they're not going to be just simply sitting back passively listening to a lecture, because that's the norm, that's what they're expecting, and so they get quite perturbed if you come in and start to make them do, take on some responsibility and do, be actively involved in their learning. Uh, this is not what they expected, so you have to prepare them, but I can guarantee you very shortly, once you engage them, they, of course, enjoy it so much more, they, they learn so much more, and um, uh, it, it becomes a, a, a great success. Uh, and the research shows, shows this over and over again, you know that uh, this is a, a, a much more, not only satisfying approach, but the perceived learning is, is much greater as well.
0: For engineering, especially the first-year engineering courses, It became a big concern and a problem, you know, when you shift online and you have all this teamwork, design challenges that students are doing and, you know, the students are freshmen. So how do you ramp them up quickly? Students struggle with so many things, plainly just not even knowing how to work together well.
2: Uh, Yes, yes. I agree. Uh, again, it's the transition and getting them to to work together. But you know, I I just think that it's um, it's less stressful in some ways to work in, in collaboratively and teamwork. I would think in in the sciences and problem solving and so on. So I I think it can be just a less stressful experience for many students, mm-hmm. frankly. Surprisingly, especially when you're working online, you think it's going to be far more difficult. Uh, Once students are introduced to it, 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 they gravitate to it uh, very, very quickly.
0: Because, again, another problem, students working in teams is um, some of the students not pulling the weight. How the instructor should deal with that in an online
2: environment? Yeah, well, it's true in any environment. And and this is, I, I must admit, I'm a little skeptical when you... When you have group work, I don't think you should evaluate. Uh, you, there are times when you can evaluate from a group perspective, evaluate the group, but I still I think you need to think very clearly about how you want to evaluate individual learners. So I still think it has to come down to individual uh, responsibilities, particularly with regard to evaluation. So there's a you know quite often. Um, and this is my own personal bias, but but very often uh, people that first get involved in this, they, they just use group evaluation and give everybody the same grade or so on. I think that that is problematic. And I think you need to think around this, uh, how to do this uh, more clearly, I think.
1: I wanted to ask you a question um, about intentionality. So we think about how courses genuinely are are designed, not just engineering courses. If you expect to be face-to-face, then there are certain things, not to say all practitioners do it well, But the ones who mean well, they try to build in certain things into their courses. Um, And if you're teaching an online course, you also have the mindset of, I'm going to be with my students online, whether synchronously or asynchronously, however the setting is. But when you're having to make this jump from a class that was meant to be face-to-face to face that now has to be brought into the online space because of you know the pandemic, for example. But maybe they're shifting. There are things that shift in the environment that kind of cause you to be able to to have to make these decisions. What advice, if any, would you have for instructors who are now? Um, having to be thinking about this online experience if they wanted to use this framework so they are not scholars in the community of inquiry framework they've probably never heard of it but haven't really used it but if someone were interested in using this what would you suggest they do and you did suggest the book but if you could tell them yeah. Five things that they could try or attempt yeah. to do. What would that be?
2: Yeah, actually, I would walk that back. About certainly, you can look at a book, but the the the, the key, I think, is you've got to rely on on the specialists mm-hmm. and find out your teaching, learning, technology, resource people, and you've got to work with them. There's no doubt about it. The average teacher just doesn't have the knowledge that you've already alluded to, or mm-hmm. or the experience. Uh, to do this it, with limited time that they have, uh, particularly university professors have uh, so much uh, responsibility, so many things, you know, with their research, with their teaching and uh, mm-hmm. supervision and so on. So you know, it's a it's a major challenge. Let me let me though just focus on where the, the it's a huge challenge if they, as most teachers do, they lecture. So that's a that's a major shift, and you that's where yeah, reading and talking to the experts because you need to get out of that mindset of disseminating information through lecturing. And you need to flip it, as they, you know, the phrase, the flipped classroom. You need to flip it. You need to think about how the students can familiarize themselves with the material before they get to class. And this can be face-to-face or online. And uh, the one thing I would emphasize is, is that community of inquiry is a generic model. It applies to face-to-face, to online, or blended. It's the same idea. It's really a transformation in thinking about how students learn. And uh, to a more collaborative approach, which has proven to be far more effective than passively sitting and listening to a lecture. So those that are doing lecturing, that's going to be a major transformation, and they really need the help and support. It's not realistic to expect that they, they can start from scratch and learn the technology, learn a new approach to teaching and learning, and be confident with that. That's just a, totally unrealistic. However, if you're a face-to-face teacher and you are uh using uh, more of a flipped classroom approach and using the the face-to-face time uh, for discourse and, and, um, you know, exploration of ideas, Uh, then it's going to be a relatively easy transformation because then you just have to learn a little bit. And with technological help, learn how to set up smaller groups, for example, online and and so on. And, And the technology isn't that onerous. But it will take time, and, and I don't expect people to, um, you know, to do this on their own. They, it okay. really is totally unrealistic. So uh, institutions have to step up and provide that support.
0: What would you say to skeptics who might compare the new form of online learning to say that, well, when we look back at, like you mentioned, the distance learning, what you would send packages and, you know, there didn't seem to work as effectively. and People would say, well, we went through different stages and we tried different things. There's just nothing that comes close to the face to face. What do you think yeah. about that?
2: Yeah, uh well I I it's interesting because uh I certainly recognize that face to face is is far more enjoyable. I would I would love to uh, if I had a choice I would teach face to face, okay? There's no doubt about it. But you know, from a and, and it's mainly from a motivational uh, enjoyment perspective. You know, but because I would argue, and I think there's a lot of evidence to this, that you can be even more effective online, and if you can combine them, of course, blended. Which we uh, I did a book on this as well. Co-authored a book on blended learning, mm-hmm. uh, where you can combine the both and you're in the, in, in the best of both worlds. You know, you can have, have the strength of, of each and, and learn to integrate uh, that, uh, to the, the greatest uh, capabilities you can. So, but I still going back to online learning because if you use it properly, design it properly, it can be extremely effective because you have the reflective component. You also, mm-hmm. when you're when you're you're engaging in discourse through text, it's much more precise. You also have a permanent record. You can go mm-hmm. back over what you've discussed. Um, so there's so many powerful components to uh, online learning, text-based or audio. I mean, if you record it, you could also. But the, the problem with sacredness is the same that you have in the classroom, is that you, you have less time for reflection. That's advantageous for some kinds of learners that are very spontaneous, but there's some that are not as outgoing and, and a little more reflective. And they really uh, gravitate towards uh, asynchronous uh, online learning. They mm-hmm. really come to life there. You you really see two different personalities emerge. In a face-to-face classroom, there will be one group of students who will be very active and engaged, you know. And then online, it's quite often the other ones can get really engaged. But the point is, I think that there are advantages and disadvantages to both. But, you know, uh, you can't discount there's some real advantages to all the asynchronous online learning.
1: Brandi, I think that's very interesting. I wanted to, as you were talking about, you know, the different types of learners, I then started to think about, well, what about the content? Do you think that there are certain content areas that are more amenable to being taught in an online environment? Or is it that we can teach just about anything online?
2: Well, yes, you can just about teach anything online, but some of it is more challenging than others, there's no doubt mm-hmm. about it. You know, the, the social sciences are, are easier because it's, it's you know, there's, it's so easy to get, engage students in discussion and so on. But the sciences are a, a little more of a challenge. But again, yeah. if we if we follow the, what I said before about the community of inquiry and using teamwork and collaboration, it can be extremely powerful. I think when you're you know solving problems, but you, but it comes back then to the whole teaching presence issue, and that is the 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 uh, dimensions of teaching presence. That is the design. You need to design the right activities and so on. But mm-hmm. if you could do that, you can have extremely effective learning experiences in the sciences. The downside, the real challenge is when you have lab experience. You know, you need to have a hands-on lab experience. Now, you can have simulations that are extremely useful. You know, my daughter's in medical school, and they, they have online labs that are, are almost as effective. But it's really hard to, to replace the, uh, the face-to-face you know lab of course so so you need to make some accommodation there and that that can be done again the facilitation part sorry i may be going off on a bit of a tangent here but that's the the second uh, dimension of Teaching presence, and that's really critical that that you not, and, and I want to just emphasize this, that facilitation is to encourage the students to take responsibility. So you have to be careful that you don't get too involved when you're facilitating. And let the groups, this is where small groups can be very powerful, let them struggle and figure things out, you know, and, and come up to find the solutions and not intervene too much. Um, in the social sciences, if you intervene too much and the teachers, you know, expressing themselves too much and giving their ideas, it shuts down the discussion and, and, the, and the discourse. And, it, and then they start just looking at the instructor to, okay, well, what, do you want, what, what is it you want me to think or do, you know? So mm-hmm. facilitation is, is important to keep the, the, the discussion moving forward and be productive. But you also can't intervene too much. Otherwise, you become too dominant and you actually shut down the discourse. It's really hard not to say, Oh, you want to get in there and say, Well, did you think of this? And mm-hmm. whatever. And you can do that to a certain extent. You've got to be careful not to overdo it. You know, you want to throw out ideas to get them going in certain directions. But yeah, you 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 can't uh, you know you've got to let give them some responsibility control really uh, if they're going to take responsibility that's that's the the interesting uh, key is you if if you if you're not willing to take the risk to give them control then they won't take responsibility you know mm-hmm. and so if you want to maintain control you're going to have a really hard time getting the students to take responsibility and really truly engage.
1: So am I, correct me if I'm wrong here, but am I hearing like certain tenets of discovery learning or a kind of a guided inquiry approach? Uh,
2: yes, uh, I pref- probably prefer a little more problem-solving approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't like the word discovery because that often goes to the extreme. You're like, okay, just right. give them some stuff and let's see what they, they figure out <laughs> on their own, you know. Right. And that's not an educational experience. So that's why I'm a real advocate of, of teaching presence and the third element of teaching presence is direct instruction which a lot of people say well how did you come up with that if you're going to have a collaborative approach where is the role of direct instruction well we're talking about an educational experience so there is a place for direct instruction it has to be efficient it wants to be effective too you know so you need need at times to jump in and present ideas and say did you think about this and and move the discussion on along Mm -hmm. in certain ways So there is a role of direct instruction to help things. But again, you can't be too dominant. You know, it's uh, an art to manage a community of inquiry. When you want to
0: use this approach of teaching in an online environment, what should you train out of yourself? I don't know if there's a way to kind of summarize because I feel like we come in without baggage. Well,
2: you know what it is? It's you want to show off how smart we are, and you want to give them the answers. You see, Mm -hmm. and you you got to really—that's where you got to really be careful. Is yes, at times you got to give them ideas and encouragement if they're blocked or whatever. You know, did you try this? But you can't. You know, as professors, especially when we're lecturing. We want to show off. We want to, you know, show how much we know and all this and that, whatever, right? So you've got to really be careful of that. There is a place for that. You know, there really is. And you need to, you know, to develop respect and credibility. But you got that's where I think you, you really need to be careful.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Another thing you just touched on, uh, the questions that we've heard, developing respect, credibility, developing trust in an online environment especially with students when you start teaching an online course and you've never met face-to-face. How do you do that?
2: Yeah, well, uh, I have a couple of uh, suggestions. And, And the thing, first of all, let me say, the, the biggest mistake w- with a lot of people make with community of inquiry is a, and because we do emphasize social presence. And um, so they spend a lot of time on introductions, too much time. So they take the first class or a large part of it just doing introductions with the whole class. And, and I think personally, that's a mistake. Um, let me just, a uh, general comment is, is, uh, you get to know the, the other participants, I think, over time. It, you can't do it instantly through introduction. So, uh, there's a little technique that I use is, again, I break them at the start of the class. I, I, I go over the, the, the expectations of the course and so on. So they have some ideas that I say. Then I break them up into groups and I say, I want you to introduce yourself, and I want you to discuss these expectations. Are they realistic? What questions you might have? So through the process of discussing what the course is all about, they're also getting to know their fellow uh, students, you know, but in small groups. So they, they, it's it's not stressful, uh, which can be, especially in a face-to-face, if you have to stand up in front of a class and Talk about yourself, at least I always found that so there's little things like that and and then you can you can change the groups up as you go along and they can get to know other students but more importantly there that they, you want to have an online uh, uh, chat room where they can put up a little bio of themselves. And uh, so others can get to know them and they can have and I make this chat room, by the way, just for students only quite often. And so they they can feel free to complain about the instructor or whatever, you know, uh, theoretically, although there's often they're a bit suspicious of that. But anyways, it's mainly for the students. And they can get to know each other and discuss, uh, if they're having issues or questions or whatever. They informally, they can have discussions. And this is very important, actually. On the instructor side, I w- strongly recommend as well. They could put up a little video of themselves talking about themselves. You know, get, let the students get to know them a little bit. They can talk about their background. Keep it uh, less personal, of course. But, uh, you know, so, so they can do that. And then, uh, and not, not be afraid, I encourage students to ask questions about me, for example, uh, if you have a, a question you know I I'll give them a little bio but not too much and uh, so so that way you become part of the community you see so you're you're just really part of the community that 's again the, the ideal goal you can, it doesn 't happen right away again from a social presence perspective. You're going to have to take more control and, and, but you have to develop that, that rapport, that, mm-hmm. that, um, trust, as, as you noted, uh, that will allow them to, to open, to communicate more openly, which is a second uh, dimension of, of social presence. And through that, you get to the third dimension, which is, um, group cohesion. And so they really begin to identify as a group. And then they're, they're really open to saying whatever they want and they're not, uh, resistant to, frankly, challenging others, you know. And that's the, the, very important thing you gotta realize that, uh, they get to know each other t- too much. You, you know, interpersonal relationships can actually shut down critical discourse. So again, uh, sort of paradoxically, you, you develop social presence by not being too social, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, uh, that's just something I would, uh, and I think it would resonate with a lot of engineering professors as well. Um, so just you've got to kind of let that happen naturally. In your
0: experience, uh, were the examples when it was really hard to get to this group cohesion? There are just some teams that don't work well together, and I think it's a big challenge for instructor to help figure out what they can do
2: yeah that that is then brings in really your skill of facilitation and and actually, if you you know maybe try to find out sometimes it's it's more often this one individual's being obnoxious or whatever, and then you can you know what I do is I'll go online individually with that person and and just try to resolve what the issues are, so you need to identify where the problem is. With with situations like that, another suggestion would be, um, and this can be good, both good or bad. But you can you you might want to mix up the groups to a certain extent if you really want to develop a, a real total group cohesion. But if you have a very large class, I would actually recommend against that. And maybe engineering classes are quite large, so I would recommend, for example, that you develop a group. And let them stay together for most of the time. Not always, but most of the time. And then they begin to feel very comfortable with each other and they'll shape each other usually. And you can overcome a lot of the issues that if you're just randomly selecting teams all the time, they're going to be, there can be issues.
1: As we're thinking about wrapping up this conversation, Randy, what should an engineering instructor or practitioner um, if they want to be successful at attempting this approach, what advice, key nuggets, key thoughts would you have?
2: Well, they they would be just general ones that, that I really uh, touched on before. And I, I, I think this you've got to recognize it's an enormous challenge, I think, to integrate the technology with new ways of thinking and learning. And so, uh, in that regard, as I mentioned before, I would strongly suggest uh, consulting with uh, instructional technical support specialists uh, um, that will allow you, to, you know, the instructors to focus on rethinking their pedagogical approach and not feel overwhelmed by the technology. So mm-hmm. that that would be a really critical one. I, I just think. Uh, Otherwise, you're, you're going to set yourself up for a lot of frustration, which, which really is not good for anybody. And so um, the other thing really goes um, to the, the community inquiry it's, itself. It requires really rethinking about uh, students' learning in a digital age, and that is that Community of Inquiry is a template that can be enormously useful in coping uh, with the inherent complexity of moving to collaborative online blended approaches to learning. So I would highly recommend have a look at the Community of Inquiry, that reference that I gave you. You know, you can mm-hmm. skim it and just get a general idea of what it's all about. So if you really, you need to get some that template, that framework uh, in which to operate. And and as I said, there's so many people are picking up on it now because they're having to very quickly communicate to people, what is online learning all about? What do I have to think about? You know, this is mm-hmm. like, this is overwhelming. And yet it's a very simple not simple model, but uh, parsimonious model uh, with three elements. I think it's easy, very easy to grasp, and you can get into it as deep as you want. So that, that would be the other thing. Um, and, and, again, just to reemphasize what it's all about. It's about engagement, collaboration. And related to that, I alluded to this before, but I, I would emphasize that don't be afraid to share with, with your, your students what your approach is you know what what the committee inquiry if you wish if you want to use that as a framework what it's all about and to and particularly with regard to inquiry and the phases of inquiry and you know you're going to rely on the, the inquiry approach that Students should have some, again, metacognitive view and understanding of of what the phases of inquiry are, so they kind of know, you know, when I'm in a discussion, okay, I'm in an exploratory phase, but now I've got to start moving to more of an integration and a resolution phase, right? And so they have that, what I call, metacognitive uh, understanding, and uh, of where they're going, and that will help move them on and take responsibility for their learning. So, so share that. Uh, I would say share that to a certain extent. Not, you know, you don't over again go overboard at first because some students will, have, you know, won't be ready for it. So, you've got to prepare them slowly and, and get them to slowly take on more responsibility.
0: Brian, you know a little bit? Different question came to my mind. Do you think this framework would work in the K through 12 environment? Obviously, with with a lot of shifts to the remote learning.
2: Well, I I don't have a lot of direct experience because I come out of a higher ed background, mm-hmm. but I can tell you that a lot of there's a lot of research going on with K to 12 and and successfully. So there is a growing body of research, and there is no reason. As I said, this is a generic model. This applies to face-to-face or online, mm-hmm. so there's no reason why it wouldn't apply, with modification, of course, to K-12. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have taught at, actually at all levels, and so I spent a couple of years teaching younger students, and that's actually what I learned the most about collaboration with younger students. Uh, I was trained in secondary math, you know, and I was thrown in teaching <coughs> elementary students. And I started talking, got up and started uh, talking, you know, lecturing, basically, writing on the blackboard. I turned around and all these little buggers were, you know, um, doing their own thing, you know, and I realized <laughs> this ain't going to work. What do I do now? You know, <laughs> they weren't paying any attention to me because they wanted to learn by doing. They want to do stuff. They didn't want to listen. It was the biggest lesson that I ever learned. So when I actually was telling you about how I got to where I am, I should have started there because I learned that my in my first week of teaching, you know, that uh, students learn by doing, not by listening. And and unfortunately, we get away from that with younger students uh, as they get older. But I think it's a big mistake. And so the community requires really about getting back to that, getting back to more collaborative, active, uh, engaged approaches to learning. Well, Randy, we
0: just want to say thank you so much for talking to us. I feel like it was a very interesting conversation, and I'm sure it will be interesting and useful to the engineering education community. Yes.
2: Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. I, I must admit it turned out better than I thought, so I, at least I enjoyed it. I don't know how it turned out. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we'll find out.